Welcome, and thanks for joining us for another sermon from True Vine Baptist Church. We are a Southern Baptist church dedicated to seeking the glory of God by proclaiming the gospel in all that we do. If you would like more information, please visit our website at true-vine-baptist.org. building your church in hundreds of ways that often look very ordinary. But yours is the power. You're the one doing this. You've given your word. You bless your gospel. You use people in all our weaknesses and frailties. And so this is what we ask, oh God. We long for you to be glorified as you should. We long for your church to be built. And so we pray that you will do it. And we pray that globally today. But Lord, we also pray this church family, this group right here, build us up. Add more who will come and be saved. We pray that would happen even today. And Lord, for all the believers who are here, we pray strengthen and sanctify, build up, embolden, oh God, increase our usefulness and service. So please bless what happens here. Help me to be able to preach, oh God, sustain this and bless us as we worship in the hearing of your word. We ask all these things in the precious name of Christ. Amen. Well, in in working through this passage, we've now considered each of the four major truths that I I told you were in uh, three through uh, 13 there. What we're doing now is we're going back to verse six And we're going to start working through the specifics, the the specific things that are mentioned here. In verses 6 through 8, there are what we oftentimes refer to as spiritual gifts that are addressed. So we're going to work through each of those specifically, spend a bit of time on each one talking about what it is and then applying it. And then when we come to verse 9, which will be sometime down the road, verses 9 to 13, there are commands of love. I'm very much looking forward to just specifically slowing down and thinking through each instruction, the command of love. So this is what we're going to be doing for some time. We've seen the bigger picture and now we're going to do the specifics. And so what we're going to do for that this morning is this. Two parts. Um, In verse six, as we begin, there is some talk about these gifts. So I'm going to spend about half the time talking about the spiritual gifts in general. And then we're going to get into the very first one prophecy. So let's get started. Gifts of the spirit. Look at verse six with me again and look at the language. He says, since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, each of us is to exercise them accordingly. Now that phrase there, each of us is to exercise them accordingly. Um, If you've got an ESV, it says something like, let us use them. That phrase is not in the original Greek but it is implied in the text and Greek does this. So we even do this in English once in a while. We will imply something by what we say, but we won't clearly state it. Greek does this way more than English. Greek will sometimes skip entire verbs. It's just because we know what the verb is. Okay. And so it just kind of does this at times. And so I I do believe it is appropriate, but I do like it when a Bible translation puts it in italics to let you know we added this word or this phrase there. So it is implied. Let us use them. But then notice the the word there, gifts. 
The word, the word gifts there is the Greek word charismata. So you probably hear in that the word charismatic uh, comes from the root word charisma, which is a word that's been adopted into English. Now, remember I've told you before, we got to be really careful about making the connection whenever we draw an English word from Greek. It doesn't mean it has the exact same definition. It just means that somehow there's a link. In English, uh, you know, we kind of use the word charisma to refer to the charm, the energetic, attractive personality of a politician or something. That's not what it means in Greek. What it means in Greek is just simply the word gift. And so that's the connection, a, a gifting. So back in Romans 5:15, where we were told about the free gift of salvation, it's, char it's, it's charisma. It's just, just the word gift that is used there. But you, you do need to hear that, that language of the charisma and charismatic. It'll be part of what we talk about today. But in order to get a better understanding of the whole subject, I want to take us to some other passages in the New Testament that talk about and even list out these gifts of the Spirit, ways that God has wired up individuals, has empowered individuals to be able to serve. So the first place you can go is 1 Corinthians 12, which is just the book right after Romans there. There's a lot of confusion over the spiritual gifts. Um, sometimes people get this idea that your spiritual gift, well, first of all, they may think I've only got one. Really, it's, it's more along the lines of just ways that God has made you to be useful. But sometimes people think that my spiritual gift is this mysterious and secret kind of thing. And I really need some mystic moment where somebody has a vision and tells me what my secret gift is, and then I can start to use it. And there's just a lot of sometimes weirdness that goes along with these kinds of things. What we're going to see is, is that scripture shows us God has made you to have ways you can serve his kingdom and his church. That way that he has made you, you've maybe never thought of it as a gift before. Okay. But it are ways that you can be useful. You know, so for instance, uh, Mr. Jordan Lundy was praying for me before the service this morning, and it was just a very encouraging prayer. That's a gift. Some people are better at that. Giftings are just ways that we're able to be useful. It doesn't have to be this weird mystic and certainly not a secret kind of thing. Can you serve the church in a useful way? And, and then here's another one. Do other people agree with you? <laughs> so does the church agree with you that you are able to serve and be useful, you know, using discernment? That, that's a gift. So look at 1 Corinthians with me. Start in verse 4, and we'll work through this. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 4. Now there are varieties of gifts, same word, but the same spirit. And there are varieties of ministries and the same Lord, the Lord Jesus. There are varieties of effects, but the same God, God the Father, who works all things in all persons. By the way, before we go any further, did you see the Trinitarian equation given there? The same Holy Spirit, the same Lord, the same God the Father who is working. The three persons of the Godhead are not working in contradiction with one another, okay? They, uh, uh, he, our God, is working in us, verse 7, but to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Notice three different ways that these gifts are referred to. 
ministries, he calls them, effects as well, manifestations of the Spirit. They are ways to serve and be useful. Some of them are kind of obvious, like the apostles had a gift of an office that they functioned in. But as we're going to go through things, we're also going to just see things like God has caused some Christians to have more faith than others. And their faith influences everybody else. And they serve uh, in that kind of way. They, they maybe don't even stand and preach sermons or whatever, but it's just their influence helps the rest of the church. There are varieties of ways that God has wired us up to be useful to one another. Um, find, uh, find verse eight as we continue on in 1 Corinthians 12. For to one is given the word of wisdom through the spirit. Some people are wiser than others and they're able to give counsel to the church and to another, the word of knowledge, according to the same spirit to another faith by the same spirit and to another gifts of healing by the one spirit and to another, the affecting of miracles and to another prophecy and to another, the distinguishing of spirits to another, various kinds of tongues and to another, the interpretation of tongues but one and the same spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually, just as he wills. Now jump down to verse 27, where he kind of continues this. Now you are Christ's body and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healings helps, administrations, various kinds of tongues. And then he continues on. There's a great deal of difference. There's all kinds of difference, but one of the same spirits working all of them. And then he says, but I'll, st I'll show you a more excellent way. And that leads us into chapter 13, the chapter directing in love. All right. So there's first Corinthians 12. Now jump to Ephesians four with me. Ephesians chapter four, a few books after this. Find verse 11. Uh, and notice what he says here. And he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints. Now, one specific thing I want to point out to you in this passage is this. Notice that there is a separate category that's given for profit and then later pastors and teachers. That'll be important here in a little bit when I show you that there is a difference between those things. And then just one more that I wanna point out to you if you go to the book of 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter four, it's really a very simple passage, but you hear the exact same message that's preached. 1 Peter 4 verse 10, as each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength that God supplies. Then I want you to watch this last part because this is incredibly important. So that, here's the purpose, in all things, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. That last part is really important 
because it's kind of similar sometimes when you talk about end times kinds of things. It's almost like you sometimes if the conversation doesn't go how it should, you drift off into some directions that seem to lose its connection with the middle, where we're supposed to be the center of all things. Sometimes when people get to talking about the gifts of the spirit and the sign gifts and all these things, it kind of wanders off in the bushes into this weird mysticism. Look, the point is the end of all things is that God would be glorified and God is glorifying his name by exalting the name of his son. The name of Jesus is being exalted by the church. His name is attached to the church. The church being built up, the body of Christ being built up. What that means is as we are reaching lost people to come be worshipers of Christ, as all of us are growing in obedience and holiness, service, we shine as lights. We, we live with sanity in a world of crazy, okay? We are showing the glory of Christ. That's the point in all of it. And so even the smallest of ways that we serve are all ways that we're building up the strength of the church. And when the church is strengthened, Jesus is exalted. So that's important to see. But you notice there that Peter mentions two categories of gifts, speaking gifts and service gifts. And taking this then with other passages, we oftentimes divide the gifts, these spiritual gifts into three categories. And the three categories are sign gifts, speaking gifts, and service gifts. So you think through all of them, they fit in these categories. Now, this, um, the sign gifts. This is usually where the bulk of the confusion comes in. This is probably what you knew we were going to be needing to spend some time on today. So I am going to take some time here and, and just talk specifically about the sign gifts to try to help us think through it in a biblical sort of way. By the sign gifts, we're talking about the gifts of tongues, prophecy, miracles, healings, the miraculous there. This language, sign gifts, it comes from two main passages in the New Testament. The first passage is in 1 Corinthians 14, and, and we'll be doing some dialoguing about that. 1 Corinthians 14 says this. It says that tongues were, were designed to be a sign to unbelievers. Think day of Pentecost, okay? Holy Spirit came. On the first day, the Holy Spirit was poured out. The apostles had supernatural ability to preach in languages, not gibberish, human languages to preach the gospel and souls were saved. And it was a miraculous thing. And it was shown to be miraculous. It was a sign to unbelievers. And then we're told that prophecy is a sign to believers. But then there's also 2 Corinthians 12, 12. And in that passage, Paul mentions... Now, remember one of the things that Paul was battling, the early, the early church was battling. They were battling that false teachers were traveling around all over the place and false apostles were traveling around and claiming to be apostles. Guys, it's the same today. It's exactly the same today. This has been happening since the beginning. Jesus said it was going to happen. And there were false apostles who would come around. They'd show up at a church and they'd say, hey, I'm an apostle. Listen to me. Well, how do you know who a true apostle is? How do you know who a true teacher is? Well, here's how we know who true apostles are. Number one, 
the discernment of seeing, does their message match the scriptures? And in the beginning where that wasn't as clear and the New Testament wasn't written yet, here's the second. God granted the apostles to have a supernatural ability to perform miracles, healings at times, for as God to be able to show from heaven, those are my guys. Those are the men that I have chosen to be the leader. So 2 Corinthians 12, 12, listen to what he says. Paul says to that church, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with all perseverance by signs and wonders and miracles. These signs were ways that if Paul could show up and preach a message and the, pre and the people said, how do we know whether or not we can believe you? God gave them supernatural ability to heal and to perform miracles so that the people would see this is a man that has God's choice and approval and has the authority of an apostle. It's the, it's the exact same reason why in the book of Acts, there was that occasion where Philip went out and preached the gospel in Samaria. And, and first Samaritans believed uh, the message of the gospel, but they didn't receive the Holy Spirit. Now, why didn't they receive the Holy Spirit? That's, the common way is, okay, the way it happens all the time, is the moment of the new birth, you receive the Holy Spirit. They didn't. Why is that? Well, God designed it that at least one of the apostles had to show up, lay hands on the people and pray for them, and then they receive the Holy Spirit. And if you think about it, it makes total sense. This was a new people group and God was identifying to that new people group that the, who his chosen apostles were. It also happens to be the case that the Samaritans and the Jews did not get along and the Samaritans had a tendency to reject everything Jewish and vice versa. God made it so that these Samaritans would not be able to reject the authority of these Jewish apostles. And God demonstrated, these are the guys that I have given the authority for the establishing of the church. In, in God's providence, in his plan, he could have done this any way he wanted to, okay? He could have done it that everything was just supernatural every single day and angels just floated and flew amongst us and everything was just so obvious like that. That's not what he chose to do. He chose to work through people. And in establishing the church, he chose to ordain apostles to serve as the authority who wrote and influenced and oversaw the writing of the New Testament scriptures for the establishing of the church. You, you know, you think about the day of Pentecost and what was demonstrated to the Jews. The apostles supernaturally able to speak in languages they'd never heard before. Peter would walk through the streets and his shadow would heal people. That doesn't happen today, no matter how charismatic you are, okay? Uh, his handkerchief could touch someone and they be healed. Okay, that doesn't happen today. We don't expect it to happen today and it's not evil that we don't expect that to happen today. What was happening? God did something special in the age of the apostles for the establishing of the church. Because you got to remember, you live in a cursed world. You live in a cursed world where Satan 
is always attacking the church because he hates God. He hates the glory of Christ. And though we often fail to see it, the strength of the church preaches the glory of Christ. He wants to distort, corrupt, bring down, put any obstacle he possibly can to the church. And, and one of the ways that he does that is through heresies, errors, false teachers, false apostles. And so one of the ways that God was showing who his true apostles were is he gave them signs, supernatural ability. Do you remember like with Moses in the book of Exodus? It's the same thing there. How do we know that Paul was a true apostle? God authenticated him. In the same way that God authenticated Moses by the staff that turned into a snake and vice versa, God said, these signs are going to show that you are truly a prophet and that I have chosen you. So all of this is really important as it applies broader as we talk about the sign gifts in general. I make the argument of historic Christianity. This is the argument of historic Christianity, that the sign gifts were designed for the early church in the age of the apostles for the establishing of the church. And after then the age of the apostles, they dwindled and are no longer in regular use. And if they exist today, they exist in rarity. So if you're asking yourself, because some people do, why don't we have the book of Acts kind of stuff happen anymore? Maybe a lot more people would be saved if God would just send some lightning bolts and some miracles. Or sometimes people ask, why do you Baptists not believe in things like speaking in tongues and whatnot? Well, here would be my two main arguments. I mean, I've already described a little bit, but here would be two arguments that I would give you for why I believe this. First, in 1 Corinthians 13, 8, we have the love chapter there in 13 sandwiched in between two chapters that are talking about the gifts in the church. That Corinthian church was misusing gifts and sandwiched in the middle. He says, here's what's supposed to be motivating all of this, the love. So first Corinthians 13, eight, it says this love never fails, but if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, referring to special revelations of knowledge, it will be done away. So I believe that verse is referring to the fact that there would come a point in time that these things would fade. They would cease. I do want to be fair and objective, however, and tell you that the next couple of verses that come after that do lead some to say that that time is not yet. Okay, so, so I believe the way that this reads is, verse 8 says, these tongues, this prophecy will cease in the thought. And then he goes on to talk about one day, uh, we will know in fullness when the perfect kingdom of God comes. But some people believe that it's connected. So here's what the next couple of verses after that say, for we know in part, and we prophesy in part, that when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. So some say that that is a justification that the sign gifts will continue until the kingdom comes. But here would be my second argument that it, some, somehow you have to come, come to come to grips with. For 1800 years of church history, the sign gifts were not practiced. And the only way that they were practiced was by uh, heretics and cults. 
For 1,800 years of church history, the sign gifts were not in regular use. There weren't the tongues. There weren't the prophecies. Okay. So from about the year 100-ish AD, okay, at the close of the New Testament canon, until the early 1900s, there wasn't this regular use of sign gifts, tongues, you know, prophecies, all these kinds of things. You somehow have to come to grips with that. Was, was there really no true church for 1,800 years? Wouldn't that kind of contradict a whole lot of what Jesus said? Guys, when you read the New Testament, we, we see it's not obsessed with the miraculous, with, with the sign gifts. When you read the book of Acts, which is where the most of those miracles took place, when you read Acts in honesty, it's not about gifts of the Spirit. What it is about is Jesus building his church and doing so by the spread of the gospel. The book of Acts is about the gospel being proclaimed. And guys, think about every one of the sign gifts. What, what did they do? Tongues. What was the purpose of tongues on the day of Pentecost? To preach the gospel. The purpose of prophecy. What's its purpose? First, first Corinthians 14 to preach the word of God. What was the purpose of the miracles and the healings? To authenticate the true gospel, to authenticate the true tellers of the gospel. The whole book of Acts is always about the gospel, the gospel, the gospel being preached because as the message of Christ and salvation is preached, people are saved and the church is built. It's not a big obsession with the sign gifts. And then whenever you read through the rest of the New Testament, it's also not obsessed with these things. In 1 Corinthians, for instance, which has more content, more page space than anywhere else about gifts of the Spirit. Even when Paul is talking about a lot of the miraculous, do you notice what some of the uh, language and tone of Paul is? A lot of his tone was meant to calm the Corinthians down because they were acting crazy. They were coming together and there was chaos. He said, people come into your midst and you guys look nuts. The church is supposed to have order. And so he called for order within the church, even as he addressed the sign gifts. And so what we see in history, 100-ish AD, after the close, the sign gifts dwindle. And it wasn't until... It wasn't until the, the early 19, 19, uh, 19-ish, uh, 1900s in America that there was something that happened. And what happened uh, was that there was a, a group of people who got together who, you know, I, I'm, I'm trying to be objective and kind. They may have been well-meaning Christians. I don't know. They may have been well-meaning Christians, but who had a tendency towards fanaticism. And we know this because they were grieved over the fact that nobody spoke in tongues and they wanted to re-get re this going in the church. And so they met together at a house on Azusa street. This is called the Azusa street revival. They got a group of people together and day after day, they prayed, they prayed, they prayed, God, give us tongues, give us tongues, give us tongues. And after a season of time of doing this, something happened and the modern charismatic movement was born. Now, one of the things to notice, and we've been talking about this in this church history series is 
Jesus building his church doesn't go just nice, clean, and easy, and everybody acts exactly like they're supposed to. It's messy. Many of the seasons of church history that I love have had messiness and fanaticism, for instance. So for instance, during the Great Awakening, George Whitfield and Jonathan Edwards, some of the greatest theologians to ever speak the English language, during the Great Awakening, there was fanaticism by brand new believers who got amped up about their new religion, but then were seduced into some error. During the Great Awakening, there would be these times where people would go off to the woods and somebody said they saw the devil in the woods and they'd all go chase him, okay? Were they really doing that? Is that really how this works? No, okay? That, what was it? It was fanaticism and that happens. That doesn't mean that you can't be a true Christian. There are thousands of different kinds of errors that can come. But what we see happen in the, in the modern charismatic movement with these sign gifts, in the movement that broke forth in the Azusa Street Revival, um, was that there, there had been this 1800 years where this wasn't practiced and then this desire, and then we see it spreading today. But what, there, there are cautions that need to be given with this. You know, and one of the big cautions that we need to comprehend the Holy Spirit never works to exalt himself. And the New Testament tells us that. Everywhere that we are ever told about the Holy Spirit, what does Jesus always say? His purpose, his role, his function, he exalts the name of Christ. The Holy Spirit never shows up to a service to try to get a bunch of people whipped up into a, a frenzy so that they will call attention to themselves or to exalt the spirit. He is always pointing people towards Christ. Look for that as you read through the New Testament. It's all over the place. So what do we make of the sign gifts in, in general? Well, they served a purpose. God gave them for the establishing of the church. And now the New Testament scriptures are written. The church is established. They have fulfilled their function. And when you uh, look at uh, all of them together, sign gifts, speaking gifts, and service gifts, if we come and talk about all of them together, bring, bring them all together, we get a better picture of what this is all supposed to do. It is all designed for the strengthening and building of the church. It, what you do when you show up and sing and talk and encourage and teach and volunteer from the biggest of ways to the smallest of ways, you are serving Christ. You are exalting the name of Christ because the church family is built up and there needs to be physical, there's physical needs and spiritual needs in every way that we serve. The church is being built. Guys, the, the, the banner that flows over this age is Jesus' statement. I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Jesus is seated on his throne in heaven. He is building his church and he is doing it in a number of ways. One of the big ways he is building his church is by actively sending his spirit and his spirit works to empower his people to serve and be useful. So Christian, there are ways that you were born, wired up, 
maybe even opportunities you were given in your upbringing, ways that you can be useful, but listen very carefully, if you just stop there, then nothing will ever happen. Because the whole point of the Holy Spirit and his empowering is this. If God does not bless your effort, no spiritual good will ever come. You remember that the apostles in Acts chapter one were told by Jesus, you've got this giant mission, reach the whole world with the message of the gospel. This is a huge mission. And Jesus said, don't go yet. Why? They could preach. They knew a lot. They knew what they should say. But Jesus told them, don't go yet. Why weren't they supposed to go yet? Because they did not yet have what they needed. He said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and then you will be my witnesses. If the Holy Spirit, if the apostles would have gone out in Acts chapter one, they could have preached every day till they passed out and no one would have been saved because if the Holy Spirit doesn't bless, then there is not the spiritual growth of the building of God's kingdom. You could be the greatest communicator of history. And if the Holy Spirit doesn't bless what you say, come to the moment and build Jesus's church, there will be no good that happens whatsoever. And yet a stuttering, stammering child can lead souls to salvation if the Holy Spirit blesses what they say. Listen, Augustine from history was saved on a day that he heard a girl in the yard next to him singing Bible songs. Singing a Bible song saying, take up and read. And he opened his Bible to the book of Romans, read one verse and was born again. When the Holy Spirit chooses to work through his people, okay, he is able to accomplish what he wants. The whole point of why they are called gifts of the Spirit is because we may be doing work and toiling and sweating, but he's the one who blesses. He's the one who is building Jesus' church. And then here's another argument. It's the last thing I'll say about the gifts in general. Christian, very often, God works to build his church through ways that look very ordinary. We always want everything to be exciting and sensational. That's a trap. It's a trap. God often works through means that look ordinary. Prayer, the teaching and preaching of God's word, the ordinances, fellowship, singing, encouragement. God works through means that don't look miraculous, but we know what is happening in the heavenly realm. So there's a bit about the gifts in general. Now, now let's start to get into the first of the gifts that is mentioned. Let's spend some time talking about prophecy. We see it in the text there, it's mentioned in the passage. So let's ask, first ask the question, what, what is prophecy? Well, even from the beginning, whenever we try to define it, we're already in some discussion and some places where some Christians disagree. So one of the popular ideas uh, some of those who believe the sign gifts have ended have wanted to say that prophecy is, is simply or can be just what you and I would call preaching, just what is happening right now. 
So some say that prophecy is simply announcing the word of God, whether that comes by fresh revelation or by looking at old revelation. Okay, the scriptures, that's, that's all prophecy. And, and, and while I believe that there is connection between prophecy and preaching, and we're going to get there, I, I just don't believe that's what the text indicates. Believe me, that would be very convenient for me to tell you because then I could just go on and talk about preaching. I love to talk about preaching, okay? But the context is a little more difficult than that as we got to look at what, what is actual prophecy. I, I think that we can put that argument to bed that prophecy is just preaching by three quick arguments, okay? So here they are. First, the use of the Greek word in the New Testament, okay? Prophecy, prophetia, it's used 19 times. The word for prophet is used 144 times in the New Testament, there is not a single place where it's at least made cl anywhere clear that prophecy is referring to preaching. There are some places where it's kind of like, well, I guess it could be, but there's no place where we see that clearly shown that that is preaching. Okay. So when Pastor Ben or I preach to you, God did not tell me what to say. I have not heard his voice. What does the New Testament preach? Pastors are to study, study, take pains with these things. And we teach the word from the scriptures. And there is a difference between teaching and preaching, but we'll get into some of that whenever we get to teaching in the text. A second argument that I'll point out to you uh, for why I do not believe that preaching and prophecy are just the exact same thing. I pointed out in Ephesians 4, 11, that, uh, the, that prophet was listed separately from pastoring and teaching. They are listed separately. They're not just called the same thing. But then here would be the third argument. And I think that this one is an important one. We know that the New Testament says that the work of preaching is for men, men and not women. Now, if you're new to studying the Bible, you might find that offensive um, because you live in a culture that's always trying to be offended about everything. Uh, you live in a culture that is constantly shrieking as we say, you know, just really crazy things like women have babies and men don't, you know, we're just, we're just nuts. We're nuts. Okay. You know, Christians are people who believe the sky is blue and men and women are different. We're just absolutely crazy. We get it. Okay. We believe men, God created men and women differently. And this is good. And this is beautiful. Okay. And, and so listen, nurturing in, in many different forms, nurturing is a beautiful feminine work. And there are masculine kinds of work. Fighting in combat is a masculine kind of work. Preaching is a masculine kind of work. The New Testament shows that it is not for women to engage in. This is leaving the function and the role that God has designed. In 1 Timothy 2.12, this is scripture. If you say you're a Christian, you must submit to scripture. Paul said that a woman is not to teach or to exercise authority over a man. In 1 Corinthians 14, when Paul describes uh, order within the church and the judging of prophecy, okay, we'll get there. Women were not to take part in the judging of the prophecy because that would involve the exercise of authority in this, okay? So if women are not to preach, but we do see in scripture that women did prophesy like Philip's four daughters in the book of Acts. Well, then that pretty well shows that preaching and prophecy are not exactly the same thing. May have been a roundabout argument, but it makes sense in my mind. Hopefully it makes sense in yours. So what then is prophecy? 
Well, let me tell you, and then I'll, I'll point you to some text that show you this. Prophecy is when God gives direct communication to a person and that man or woman then communicates it. Sometimes our minds immediately jump to predicting the future, okay? But listen, that's not what prophecy is. Sometimes prophecy will do that, but that's not by definition what it is. Prophecy is revelation, direct revelation from God. In the Old Testament, God raised up prophets like Moses, Samuel, Elijah, Nathan, Isaiah, Jeremiah, those other books of the New Testament in the prophets, but also hundreds of others who didn't get their own book. And God gave them messages that they were to preach to the people. In the Old Testament, prophets were sometimes called a seer because oftentimes the way that God would communicate to them was through a vision. So here, here's an example of that in Jeremiah chapter one. In Jeremiah chapter one, it was the first time that God ever spoke to Jeremiah. He had never been a prophet. He had never seen a vision, never heard a word from the Lord. And one day God showed up to him. He heard God's voice and saw a vision. And when I say he heard God's voice, people around him would not have been able to hear God's voice, but he heard God's voice internally. Jeremiah did not have a thought pop in his head and say, you know, I think God wants me to say, no, never. That's not the way this works. Sometimes people get the idea that if I have a thought pop in my head, that's God talking to me. No, this is not prophecy. That is dangerous. Okay. This leads people to hell. If you're reading the Bible, not every thought you think is from God. Scripture commands us test the spirits, distinguish the spirits. You are always being worked on by angels, demons, the Holy Spirit. Do not ever think that just a thought that pops in your head must be from God. That's not what happened to Jeremiah. Listen to Jeremiah 1 verse 11. The word of the Lord came to me saying, what do you see, Jeremiah? And I said, I see a rod of an almond tree. Then the Lord said, you have seen well, for I am watching over my word to perform it. None of this, I think God may be telling me stuff. No, vision, audible voice internally. Here's a New Testament passage addressing the same thing. 1 Corinthians 14, 29 and 30. It says, let two or three prophets speak. So this was Paul bringing order to the Corinthian church. Let two or three prophets speak and let the others pass judgment. I'll come back to that. But if a revelation is made to another who is seated, the first one must keep silent. So notice that part there. If a revelation is made, that's what prophecy is. Prophecy is a direct revelation. It's not this. I think God may be saying it is a direct revelation from God. Now, as I just mentioned there in the early church, it was, um, it was ordered that when the church had someone deliver a word of prophecy, be it a man or a woman, the church was then to judge that prophecy. Meaning they were to exercise discernment, evaluating whether or not it was truly of God. The church's leaders were to come together and to give an approval or a, or a disapproval of it. Now listen, this was no doubt the case 
because their day was much like our day. And there is no shortage of wannabe prophets who want to feel spiritually superior to everybody else and go around making wild predictions and saying, God told me this and God told me that. There are no shortage of wannabe prophets. If you are a Christian long enough, you're going to encounter this. You're going to encounter this. And, and listen to me, they may fall in the whole range of things. You, you may encounter someone who gives you some word of prophecy and they secretly worship Satan. That's usually not the case, but it exists. You may encounter somebody who gives a word of prophecy and they don't worship Satan, but they are self-deceived. They think they're a true prophet, but they're actually an unbeliever. But let me, let me also say this. You may also encounter someone who speaks some word of prophet and it is a well-meaning but deceived Christian. Your theology has to be big enough to have room for that, by the way, because the Bible does. Okay, not everybody who is in error is unconverted. And not everybody who has something wrong. There are Christians who fall to error before God then sanctifies it out. And so we are to be using discernment and being a help to them. Um, I've met all kinds of the wannabe prophets. I could sit here, stand here for 30 straight minutes and tell you stories, many of them very funny and humorous because of how outlandish and ridiculous the prophecies were. I've yet to meet a single one that has said a single credible word. And if somebody goes around and throws out 10 of them and gets four of them right, somebody may put those four on the internet and go, whoa, a prophet. What about the other six? What does the test of a prophet in the book of Deuteronomy say to do to somebody who throws out false prophecies? That is a false prophet. We need to know these things. We need to know how to use this kind of discernment uh, that is there. So listen, you live in a cursed world. Uh, Satan is always trying to make the church look ridiculous. He is always trying to wreck faith. And he will sometimes do that by making the church look ridiculous to the outside world. But he will also do this by trying to discourage Christians within the church. Okay. And it does happen sometimes that Christians will fall for someone's word of prophecy. They think that this was legit. It doesn't come true. And then they doubt God. Doubt, doubt the wannabe prophet. Don't doubt the God. Use discernment. But all of that is addressing prophecy as a message of direct revelation from God. But this then leads us to the last question that we'll consider. And that is, is this gift still for us today? This is maybe where you just wished I would have jumped to from the very beginning. Is this gift still for us today? There are four main views. Here they are. Number one, some believers are charismatic, meaning that they believe that the sign gifts are still fully functioning and should be in regular use in the church. Now, let me just say a word here. I love our charismatic brothers and sisters. The charismatic movement has an awful lot of error and it is fraught with heresy. Now, we gotta be fair. Baptist movement has some damnable errors as well. They're just of a different kind. 
The charismatic movement is fraught with absolute heresies, and heresy is the strongest word you can use to false teaching that does lead to hell. And I think that we can see the clear connection for why, that, why it happens. If you're always looking for what is sensational and the next thing, you abandon the scriptures, and there is not the rooting in the clear text of the Bible. So the charismatic movement is fraught with heresies, but we do have to understand there are charismatic brothers and sisters who believe the message of the gospel and we disagree with them on this. But what it is that makes them charismatic is they believe that the sign gifts are still functioning. When you and I look at this movement and we compare it to scripture using discernment, we come to the clear conclusion that this is not honoring God. Rather than there being the exalting of the name of Christ, there is instead showmanship, constant one-upsmanship, and always wanting to call attention to self instead of calling attention to Christ. It is not used in a way that glorifies God. And so all the discernment that we have labels this, this is not what God wants for his church. The second view, and I'll go quicker. Some Christians are what they call open, but cautious, meaning they believe that the sign gift still could be in function, but we got to be real careful about that stuff. And what's happening in the main charismatic movement is just not honoring to God. The third view is what is called uh, cessationism, referring to it's ceased. So there are some like John MacArthur, uh, who believe that the sign gifts are totally done, the doors closed, and it's locked. It doesn't happen anymore. A fourth view is there are other believers who are mostly cessationist, but the doors cracked open just a little bit. This is actually the position where, where I fall. Uh, this would be some other scholars and preachers like John Piper and such. I believe the gifts, they're done in their regular use. But that doesn't mean that never in history has God not done something supernatural along these kinds of lines? And to address that, let me give a few examples. In 1415 AD, a man named John Huss was arrested by the Catholic Church for preaching the gospel, and he was tied up to be burned at the stake. He was called upon to recant for believing the gospel, and he refused, but he made a reply. And if you study the Reformation, you know this story. He said, his, his name, uh, the word Hus, uh, meant in Bohemian, goose. He said, you are now going to burn a goose, but in a century, you will have a swan that you can neither roast nor boil. In 1517, Martin Luther nailed the 95 theses to the door of the church in Wittenberg, and the Reformation was sparked. Was that prophecy? Was that a word from the Lord? I think it was. I think that was one of those rare instances when God did this. When the Catholic Queen Bloody Mary was murdering Christians for the crime of teaching their children the scriptures in English, she rounded up 270 some men and murdered them in the streets. Two of those martyrs were Nicholas Ridley and Hugh Ladmer. They were burned alive in the street. And as the fires were lit, Hugh Latimer called out to his friend, be of good comfort and play the man, Master Ridley. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust shall never be put out. The fires of the Puritan Reformation are still burning hot today. Did he know that as a word from the Lord? I think it's possible that he did. 
Charles Spurgeon had two occasions, you know, so a 30 year ministry had two occasions <coughs> where while he was preaching, he spoke some spontaneous word to the congregation like this. So here was one of them. He's just preaching and all of a sudden he stops and he says, young man, the gloves in your pocket are not paid for. And then he went on preaching. And after the service, a young man came up to him and was stunned. He had stolen some gloves before the service and he was stunned that God had seen him and it struck him. But now consider this. In the last few months, I've told you some stories of the covenanters. A number of them delivered words from the scaffold concerning judgment that would come on Scotland and it came true. But I want you to hear this part. What they were doing though, is they just simply knew the Bible really well. And they saw things like when a nation blasphemes the name of God, spits in his face and murders his people, God will judge them. And they announced that and it came. Is that prophecy? Well, I think that it could be one form of it. We might call it the, the application of prophecy. It might be one of those ways that we still have connection and can still continue the work by prophecies that have been made from past and we preach their application today, okay? And so, for instance, I'm not a prophet. I've received no word from the Lord concerning this, but I am telling you with absolute certainty, our nation is marching towards judgment and the wrath of God. And the reason that I am confident in this is because the Bible says that if a nation murders the innocent, if they shed innocent blood, their blood cries out to heaven and the God who avenges the blood of the innocent will bring wrath and judgment on that land. We are in a nation that is murdering millions of unborn and punishing no evildoers for it. With confidence, we know God has said he will bring judgment on that land. So while prophecy is not just the same thing as preaching, you do need to see a connection between the two. Faithful preaching will involve announcing the prophets of old and making application of those prophecies. So now here's the end. You've been very patient. Let me give just a couple words of application here. You might be asking, okay, all this was interesting, but what am I supposed to do with this? Well, remember a major part of what the Bible is doing is teaching us how to think teaching us how to think. When Donald Trump was at the end of his presidential term, everybody just got really nervous. Okay, what am I gonna say? When he was at the end of his presidential term, did you see that the internet absolutely lit up with supposed prophecies from people declaring he will not be removed from office? And it made the church look dumb to a watching world. And it also discouraged a bunch, sadly, of Christians and even some that I had connections with of Christians who fell for it. And then they had all these doubts about their faith because they believed a prophet. Listen, we need to know how all of this works. We need to be in the know so that we can address wannabe fake prophets 
and show them what the scripture says, we need to learn to think biblically and in a way that honors God. Next, consider the point of prophecy. The point of prophecy was to reveal the word of the living God. Christian, you have the word of the living God. When someone calls out begging, saying, I want to hear from God, speak to me, O God, and they keep their Bible closed, does it make sense they don't really want the word of God? What they want is something sensational and exciting. Christian, you have been given the word of the living God. Live your life soaking in it. Immerse yourself in it. And then lastly, God gave prophecy for the building of his church. And that is what it is all about, is what all of the gifts are about. As the church is built, the name of the Lord Jesus Christ is exalted. And God often does this in ordinary kinds of means. We come together regularly and we have ordinary means, reading the scripture, praying, singing, preaching, and even the ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper. Here in just a moment, we're going to eat bread. We're going to drink of the cup. It seems so simple to remember, and yet Jesus builds his church. So let me ask you to do this. Let me ask for just a, a moment of silence for you to pray quickly. I'll close this in prayer, and then I'll give some further instructions on the Lord's Supper. Go ahead and bow. Our great God in heaven, thank you that you are merciful to us. We thank you for Christ. And as we remember the body that he gave, the blood that he shed, I pray that we will remember in gratitude, with reverence, and that we will reflect on the gospel and be changed by it. We are sinners. Every one of us has individual sins that we need to confess to you, and we are doing that right now. We pray, look on us and show mercy, O God. But Lord, collectively we say to you, we confess, we know that we are sinners who deserve wrath, but we rejoice in the work you've done to save us from that wrath, and we want to have ongoing right relationship with you, so please bless us. Care for us right now, O God, and we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. We ask Ethan if you'll come up. And I'll give a few instructions concerning the Lord's Supper. When we partake of the Lord's Supper together, um, we do not demand uh, that anyone be a member of the church in order to partake, but we do give the warnings and instruction that Scripture gives. First, Scripture says that this is an ordinance that is designed for Christians, for believers, those who have understood that they must be saved, turned from their sins, trusted in Christ, and called on His name in order to be saved. The Bible says that if you partake um, in a way not being a Christian, that you actually eat and drink condemnation on yourself by disgracing the body and the blood of Christ. And then as believers, we are to examine ourselves, Scripture says. All of us have sinned between the last time we had the Lord's Supper and now. 
All of us have sinned this week. We have sinned this day. So the, the, the test here is not, have you been perfect or near perfect? The, the, the reality we're given is, is that we are not to live in ongoing, deliberate, unrepentant sin. Choosing to keep sin, this is what dishonors God. So if you recognize in your life that there are ways that you have just been living in rebellion to God, we just give you the caution. Don't come up here and partake. Don't eat and drink condemnation on yourself. But even if right now, you will humble your heart before God and you will repent in a resolve to turn, then we welcome you. This is for sinners saved by grace. And so um, I'll uh, read some of the scriptures here and then invite you uh, to come up in just a moment. But uh, if you'll go ahead to the back there then. Scripture says, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. If you choose to partake with us, uh, please either come up here to the front or to the back. If you'll take a piece of the bread and one of the cups, return to your seat and then wait. And then I'll read more scripture and we'll partake together. But you can go ahead and come. As we partake of the elements together, we recognize that there's nothing magical that is happening here. This is not the actual body and blood of Jesus. Jesus said we do this and we remember him. Once again, it is an ordinary means. We taste this bread. We taste the cup and we remember the real body 
and the shed blood of Jesus, and it helps us to reflect on what he has done. We all must receive Christ in order to be saved. And the act of eating and drinking reminds us of that and preaches it to us. Jesus himself said, I am the bread of life. Let's partake and remember his body. And according to the law, one may almost say all things are cleansed with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. But if we walk in the light, as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Let's partake together. Let me pray for us. Oh, Lord, our God, as we leave here, we pray that you will bless us. Bless us to be changed by your truth, changed by your gospel. Any in the room that has not been born again, we pray, O oh God, that you would awaken them and help us to live in obedience and now to go out and to honor you. Please give us your grace. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoyed this week's message. Tune in again next week as we continue through God's Word at True Vine Baptist Church. We also invite you to like our Facebook page, follow us on Twitter and Instagram at TrueVineIND, or visit our website at true-vine-baptist.org.